Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Rubel. Joining me this week, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. On today's show, we're going to go over prospects who have a second-round grade, but are guys who I feel will definitely be drafted. So these are in no particular order. I'm going off of grade at this point versus ranking in the second round. But about 10 guys I'm confident will at least hear their name called on draft night, regardless of where they're actually picked. Few of them could even end up being first-rounders, depending on how the rest of the draft shakes out. But before we get into the draft stuff, I'd be remiss to not mention my thoughts regarding the Daryl Morey hire by the Philadelphia 76ers that just took place yesterday. We are recording this on October 29th on Thursday, so we had that big news drop on Wednesday, um, as well as we've had the New Orleans Pelicans hiring Stan Van Gundy very recently, so I'll touch on that a little bit as well. We'll, we'll start in Philly. Um, as I've said on previous podcasts, uh, I, I'm from close enough to the Philadelphia area to the point where I should be covering the 76ers when major news happens and giving my thoughts. Anybody who knows me outside of the podcast, outside of the draft world, um, knows that I, I've been following the process era Sixers and on incredibly close and I've certainly had my criticisms um, as well as some positive things to say regarding this area of basketball that we're in in Philly but regarding this particular hire bringing in Daryl Morey doing something I didn't think the front office would do I know uh, my fellow podcasters over at the rights to Ricky Sanchez they've been saying for years that they wanted a front office change and a regime similar to what Sam Hinkie did in terms of being of a more analytical and a smarter mindset, making more shrewd trades to bring in better assets so that we could keep making moves um, to, to, to bring in bigger names and ultimately be set more for the future versus making more short-term, short-term-minded moves, um, kind of like what the Colangelo front office did as well as what Elton Brand and some of the contingent left behind from the Colangelo front office um, were doing, the kind of moves they were making. So I I love the hire. I think in terms of how I want to think about the game of basketball and how I evaluate, I've always believed that there should be a mix and a balance between approaching things with analytics and looking at things with numbers and statistics, as well as going back and looking at the film and doing film study. I I feel like analytics are a great tool and should be used to better initially investigate, hypothesize, and ask the correct questions. And then you look at things from more of a basketball perspective. You think about chemistry, you think about fit, um, you, you think about the play calling, the schematics, you, you meld the two together to ask and then answer the questions that would better benefit your team, your, your draft process, your evaluation process. Um, obviously, there's other things that go into signing and trading for players. We're not going to get into the financial um, aspects and the salary cap aspects of building a team. That's a different conversation for a different day. But just from your two main thought processes, analytics and film study, I think having Elton Brand still in his role as general manager, having Daryl Morey oversee him, and then having Doc Rivers there as a head coach, 
another to the details by the book film study guide to work with Elton kind of having the relationship base covered as far as how they want to deal with and manage players on their roster. And then you have obviously the analytics approach to things, what Daryl's going to do, probably being one of the smartest hires. I think I can probably think of at least in, since I've been um, old enough to to pay attention to sports. One of the smartest executives I think the city of Philadelphia has ever brought in. Um, and, and, and I think that breath of fresh air, um, bringing, that, bringing that Sam Hinkie style um, approach back to Philadelphia. Obviously, Philadelphia still made a lot of trades while Daryl um, was in Houston a lot of because of what Sam did. But just bringing that kind of mindset back to the city, I really think is going to help this organization move forward in the way that it probably should have years ago, even after everything that ha- happened with Sam Hinkie. Um, removing him from the front office, I, I really feel like they should have still stuck with a, a similar approach, maybe not as harsh, something that could be a little more marketable both to the league as well as the fan base in terms of the style of tanking that they did and how they approached gathering those assets. But at the end of the day, you still need to be very smart and, and take a lot of different things into account. Other than, hey, this worked on a basketball court 10 or 20 years ago. Let's look at who we have now. I bet maybe possibly we could replicate this. No, you need forward thinkers. You need guys who want to think and approach things three to four moves ahead of everybody else on the chessboard around the league. And and Daryl's that kind of guy. Daryl's going to come in and do that. Um, He's an honest character man. I, I think having another president of basketball operations who is very comfortable in front of a mic um, in front of the media, talking to media personalities as well. I think that's a huge plus. I mean, even when Daryl was in Houston and you, you even saw toward, towards the end of his tenure there and he was probably going to end up talking to, to media personalities or, or being involved in a media-type role even after he was done in Houston, even if he didn't take this Philly job. You heard Nick Wright joke about um, him possibly calling games on, on Twitch with Daryl Morey on on First Things First the, this morning. Again, we're recording this on Thursday, October 29th. Um, he, he made that comment, but I don't think that's too far-fetched, and I don't think that's too off-base of what Daryl likes to do. Daryl likes to talk to people. He's a social guy. That's a big reason why um, he started the, the Sloan Analytics Conference um, uh, up in New England that he was doing every year. That, that's why he did those kinds of things, because he likes to pick people's brains, um, spread new ideas, also bring in new ideas, modify them, make them his own. That, that's what he likes to do, and I think having somebody in a city – that is um, very detrimental at times to front office personnel, to players. If there isn't success, um, Philly is one of those fan bases that's going to get on you. And I think having somebody who knows how to deal with that, who knows how to deal with the pressure, who is very good in front of a camera, that's only going to bode well for the front office as well. Um, As smart of a guy as Sam was and how well-spoken he was when he did get in front of a mic or, or do an interview or had to be on camera. Um, he, he, th- those opportunities, those times were uh, n- not very common, right? He, Sam loved to operate in the shadows. He, he didn't always want to be out in front, in front of the public all the time. Um, same, same with Colangelo. I, I didn't really care for his style of how he handled interviews or how he approached things. And then Elton, I mean, El- Elton's not, 
the most experienced front office executive, right? A lot of this, he he's still learning, even after being on the job for a little bit now and, and having the right people around him in the front office to collaborate. Just in terms of like a PR perspective, he's really only had to answer a lot of questions before he got that general manager's job from a player's perspective, right? He's kind of doing post-game interviews and, and things of that nature. He hasn't really had to answer questions of that magnitude, talking about more people than just himself. So he's still learning a lot of that too. So I think having Daryl there to kind of take a lot of that bullet fire, if you will, um, and, and be able to shine lights in different perspectives, I, I think that's really going to benefit the 76ers organization as a whole. So overall, thumbs up for me. I'm really excited about the hire. I can't wait to see what they do here in the offseason with the draft, with, with any trades that they might make, with any free agents they might bring in. I think this offseason won't be more important potentially than next offseason for the 76ers after Daryl's had more time to evaluate the roster from a whole year um, while he's under the roof. But I think moves that the 76ers might make with him in charge this offseason will kind of give you an idea of where he may pivot the team or may not pivot the team depending on the success that they're able to have. I don't see, I don't foresee any major moves. I don't, think Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons are going to get traded by any means. I don't know what this hire means for somebody like Al Horford or somebody like a Tobias Harris. I guess we'll have to wait and see regarding two of those bigger contracts and see where they may or may not end up. But I don't I don't think any drastic changes are coming just because they brought in Daryl, even though he he is a swindler. He likes to make trades and usually he's winning the trade. Um, so So that's another thing that I haven't seen from the 76ers over the last few years now when they've made some of these deals, obviously they, they've lost some of those deals. Probably the biggest loss I, I can speak of, and we've referenced this in the podcast multiple times, Jimmy Butler not ultimately being happy with the 76ers and wanting to leave. You think about what they gave up to acquire Jimmy. Um, Covington and Sarge were two incredible um, role player pieces for the team as a whole. And they're no longer with the organization. And we saw multiple times, not just in the bubble, but um, since they've been gone, multiple times in which they could have used both of those players, both giving them an, an extra inside presence, a physical presence, a tough-minded guy and Sarich on the boards um, for, for second units, even being a spot starter in starting lineups at times. And then Covington, obviously, his three-point shooting and his off-ball defense were, were missed at, at multiple different points. So... Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how everything shakes out for Philly. As for New Orleans, not as many words to say on them. Um, we don't really know what direction their roster is going to head in um, this offseason. I'm not quite sure who's going to stick around, who's going to stay, who they might draft. A lot of those questions are ultimately going to have to be answered because New Orleans hasn't really um, given out a lot of information. They're, they're one of those organizations um, that, that's going to hold things more to the chest. But hiring Stan Van Gundy to run the team, he was he was a coach. I kind of wanted to go to the Philadelphia 76ers, to be honest. Um, I, I think Stan is, is certainly that grown-up in the room who's going to hold people accountable. Obviously, he's experienced. He's been around the game almost his entire life. Um, he, he, he's going to bring a, a culture change, if you will, to New Orleans, obviously that's a younger team. There are some great veterans in place like Drew Holiday and J.J. Redick who are going to, I think, meld really well with Stan and what he, he wants to do from a play perspective. But 
obviously, I think the three of them together, as long as the three of them are on the team heading into the season, barring no major moves, I think that's only going to help those young guys keep growing and keep developing in the right direction, like Ingram, like Zion Williamson, like Lonzo Ball. I, I love the hire from, from that perspective, and I think Stan's going to do a great job in New Orleans. He's an incredibly, incredibly bright coach. I'm going to miss not being able to um, hear him color commentate games on TV. I always learn something new whenever I was listening to him commentate um, and, and do a game. I, I, I love the hire. I think he's going to be great there, and I'm rooting for you. Nothing but the best for you, Stan. You you're definitely have a fan in, in Draft Deeper. So those are kind of my thoughts on the, the biggest moves that have happened in the NBA of late. Um, with, with all that being said, let's, let's jump right into the draft talk. Let's get into these 10 guys that I've handpicked, these guys that I think are definitely going to hear their names called on draft night. Um, I want to start with DePaul forward Paul Reed. Now, Reed is someone who's risen up a select few draft boards and someone that um, some execs and media scouts still value highly because of his potential defensive impact. I know I've seen him as high as a lottery grade from guys like Chad Ford and John Hollinger. Uh, taking a look at him physically, other than pure bulk, he has a lot of the other tools you would want from a 4-3 combo. 6-9 uh, with long arms, quick feet. It's tailor-made to be able to cover on the perimeter and not get lost out there. Um, he's aggressive. He stays with his man, has the lateral quickness and length to contain and keep guys in front of him, and really cause other people problems. Bring all that together and combine that with his playmaking instincts, and it's not hard to picture why his steal and even block rates coming from the weak side were some of the highest in the country. He's tough. He plays with a motor. He gives a shit rebound of the ball on both ends. So what am I missing? Why wasn't he one of the can't-miss second rounders I talked about in the last eval pod? Or why wasn't he in the top 30 earning a first-round grade in, in all of those other pods that, that we've done going over the draft deeper big board? I just don't buy a lot of what he's going to have to do offensively if his destiny is acting more as a three in that 4-3 projection than playing closer to the basket. Now, physically, I mentioned the lack of bulk, and it shows. If someone bigger than him backs him down in the post, he's not the strongest forward to keep someone off position and prevent them from getting a good look at the basket. Yes, he has his length and jumping ability to help him contest looks when someone's driving at him and he has the angle, but if someone is ahead of steam or is more powerful than he is, Reed isn't the same threat as a rim protector than some of the other guys we've talked about. And on the flip side, as I wanted to get into offense, that holds true as well. He's not decidedly a great post-up player for the same reasons, which means he has to do a lot more creating off of face-up moves or shooting jumpers from range, which I don't fully buy into um, either skill, to be honest. Now, and that let me clarify, guys who like him saw and, and think he improved enough in both areas during his junior campaign at DePaul and don't get me wrong, there were flashes. The common man could go on YouTube and even check some highlights to see slight improvements to his handle and how he's able to get some offense going off the bounce. But he doesn't have the type of creation ability to be given that responsibility for multiple plays after another on offense. Which that brings us back to the perimeter shooting. He's become enough of a threat to hit a shot off a short roll, but from three, I don't trust his mechanics. It's a push shot. We know how I feel about push shots. Not only that, but his shots can get um, ugly when his feet aren't square with his shoulders and he's taking any kind of off-balance shot where he wasn't set off the catch. So asking him to create and do multiple things from the perimeter isn't really an option in my eyes. So other than being timely and smart in terms of where he can get his shots and when, he's not really that much of a reliable offensive weapon, and he has to be more consistent on that end to earn a bigger role. 
defense isn't the same selling point that it was even five years ago. So if you're going to be a defensive specialist, you have to be incredibly versatile. Reed has had flashes of that playmaking, wreaking havoc and creating steals and blocks on the defensive end. But there are times where he gets to one-on-one situations and he breaks down because it doesn't have the requisite strength required to keep someone um, from getting to their spot if it comes down to a physicality standpoint. He's built to be a roaming playmaker, but without the reliable offense to go along with those tools, I'm comfortable giving him a second-round grade and not putting him among my top 30. But I do understand those who believe he's made enough strides offensively to come in and fight for a rotation spot in the league. He'll definitely get drafted. I, I do like Reed. Don't, don't get me wrong. I am a fan of what he brings to the table, at the very least defensively. Um, and, and there's no way you can let someone with those physical gifts alone slip out of the draft. So next on the list today is, is something I've seen, uh, someone I've seen gain a lot more first-round buzz over the last few weeks. And while I don't have the same belief in his offensive skill set as some do, I see him being drafted for similar reasons that I just outlined and, and made a case for Reed. Um, and that, that's Tyshawn Alexander, 6'4 out of Creighton, is one hell of a guard to go up against. That man will face guard you until you want to start a fight with him. He's a pest. He doesn't have the same strength level and probably isn't quite as intense as a Patrick Beverly, but that's the kind of idea you should have in your head in terms of what he brings to the table from an effort and aggression standpoint. Whether it's taking a man one-on-one, fighting through screens, rotating and closing out, Alexander just wants to play defense, man. There aren't a lot of guys who sign up right out of the gate to play defense night in and night out in the NBA, but Alexander definitely would, and it shows from what he did in college. Go on Twitter and some of the NBA draft circles, and it won't take you long to find clips of Alexander hounding someone at the top of the key and forcing a turnover because the guy was that frustrated. I love the effort he plays with. He's improved enough um, through three years on his outside shot and from the free throw line, getting to almost 40% and 86% from each spot, respectively. Um, but I don't, I don't love anything with his offensive package. I guess it would be the right word to use. I'm not the biggest fan of how he gets his jumper off and the spots he chooses for looks sometimes. He's definitely more of a set shooter. I don't trust his base when he needs to reestablish running off of a screen um, or, or acting in a play type like that. The best threes he took and made at the college level were set shots. All of the players outlined in the top 30 who are classified more as shooters or 3 and D specialists, I trust those guys to hit and create threes from different angles, not just purely standing in a corner or on the wing um, knocking something down. I don't buy his decision-making off the bounce long-term. I think his best possible outcome is in a role like, like KCP had with the Lakers this year. But KCP did a lot more or was able to do a lot more in college offensively, and he can guard up in position as well and contain three men in smaller lineups. So he's more useful of that type of player because of his size. If Alexander can prove he can hang with bigger wings and smaller lineups and play up a bit while still knocking down corner threes, that is a player worth drafting especially in today's NBA. But I'm not quite in the same spot in terms of giving him a first-round grade if that's the package I'm getting as an ultimate upside. But definitely someone to have on our radar, and he's earned a guaranteed contract at this point as a second-rounder. And by the way, before we go any further here, notice how I'm talking about Reed and Alexander right off the bat, as well as any of the guys pretty much 15 and on in any kind of rankings or grades that I've done. There are a lot of role players in this class that I think have the chance to find homes on good teams and play meaningful minutes in their careers. I really don't think the gap from the second half of the first round through a lot of the second round is that wide. 
I like characteristics in a lot of these prospects, and I'm not alone on that notion. So just because I might not have a guy in a certain spot to be drafted as someone else, that doesn't mean I don't like them as a player, as a person, or I wouldn't even want them on my team. Hell, I wish I could coach and have a lot of these guys on my team. Maybe it's because I'm a purist and I love studying the game with optimism, but I really do see meaningful roles that could take shape for a lot of these guys, or at the very least paths they could take with set skills to earn minutes to develop and maybe showcase more of the talent they have. The number of skilled players who are coming into the draft nowadays is insane, and it makes me feel unfair at times having to grade and rank certain guys because I'm a glass half full evaluator. That's who I've always been, and I let that bleed into my work for better or worse but I think it's a good way to approach scouting in general because it doesn't let me write someone off before I should in the eval process. So with all that said, let's move into the third guy here on the list, and that's Trey Jones, popular name out of Duke. Now, fair warning, I have some other Dukies on this list, so if you aren't a fan of the team and don't want to hear me compliment some of their guys, I'm looking at you, Tar Heel fans. Maybe this isn't the pod for you. I'm just kidding. Look, we know the story with Trey. He was a highly regarded recruit coming out of high school, had the Duke connection because of Tyus, and ended up as the team's point guard for the last two years. Before he got to college, there were some people that thought he could end up being better than Tyus in terms of a scoring threat overall, balanced with his playmaking and defense. Well, the scoring never really came through consistently as much as originally thought, primarily because he's just not a reliable shot maker from the perimeter. His jumper's still a work in progress at this point, and I'm not quite sure it's going to get better at the next level either. He gets a lot of his buckets on drives to the basket where he has an angle. And there were some big games that he stepped up in. And I'll give him credit for it because he hit some tough mid-range jumpers similar to what Tyus did when he was at Duke. But he's not going to have the ball in his hands to that same degree in the pros like he did in college. So the ways in which he'd likely be asked to score when called upon, he doesn't excel at unless he can really get in the open floor. He's an underrated athlete, and in a lot of ways that shows on the defensive end. He's another guy that will hound opposing point guards and make their lives hell. But even though he'd probably uh, say he can guard multiple positions, given his size, I'd probably pigeonhole him in as a point guard defender in the NBA, which isn't nearly as versatile as someone who can guard ones, twos, or even threes potentially in a pinch. He's a great teammate. No IQ or true decision-making concerns that I've seen with him in, in terms of getting others involved or choosing his own spots to generate offense. I just really question how much of an impact he can make on that end to stay on the court and let his defense shine through. He will get drafted because of his pedigree and his usefulness in a particular area, but his upside is more limited. If you had to ask me to choose between the two players, I'd probably take who I just talked about previously. I'd take Tyshawn Alexander over, over uh, Trey Jones all day because I think he can do more things in today's NBA game better than Jones. So I have Jones as a second-round grade, it wouldn't shock me if someone took a chance on him in the first round, but I wouldn't. So Robert Woodard out of Mississippi State, interesting athletic forward prospect. I've seen plenty of buzz on him going late first um, or early second. Presents some interesting mismatch potential at 6'7", 230 pounds. He's a player who's more likely a small ball four, given what he can do physically versus playing full-time outside on the wing, even though he spent time in college trying to showcase for teams that he can play the three spot and bring a physical edge on both ends as a mismatch at that spot. If you're grading Woodard in the first round, that has to be the outcome you think is possible and attainable. For me, the three-point shooting isn't where I would want it to be mechanically, and even by the numbers in terms of what he actually made off of how many attempts he took, and the 64% mark from the charity stripe last year doesn't give me confidence to sway me away from what my eyes are telling me. 
He's incredibly athletic, as I mentioned, a powerful athlete around the basket who loves cutting for lobs or running the floor in transition, certainly hustles for loose balls and plays the offensive glass well, better than, uh, better than I thought he would rebound the ball defensively. Having his size and base on defense helps to play small and guard both the three and the four, and he's not a pushover around the basket. His vertical ability lets him make a play on, the, on a block when he times it well enough and doesn't foul. So all those things are really nice and, and why I think he definitely gets drafted. If the jumper's legit, if he can clean up his poor shooting at the line and be able to convert when he gets there using um, his physicality inside the draw fouls off of those easy opportunities, then I feel a lot more comfortable about his future offensively in the league. But the overall production, offensive concerns, and lack of position potentially on that end of the floor all lead me to keep him as a second-round grade. But to me, there's no way someone doesn't draft him and bring him in to look at his jumper and what he could possibly uh, become in today's NBA. Now, here's a name that's become a favorite of draft Twitter since the combine process started, and that's Devin Dotson. Um, listed at 6'2", probably closer to six foot, um, or, or slightly under just by the eye test. Uh, lead guard for Kansas, who can be an absolute blur in the open court. He earned his lofty ranking coming out of high school because of his speed and quickness with the ball in his hands, and it shows both in transition as well as in the half court. Dotson is among the best guards in the class in terms of having the burst to get by almost anyone he wants and get to any spot he wants to on the court. The difference is knowing when to play at what speeds, how to adjust, and choosing your spots more carefully given a lack of size. Dotson didn't do those things well in his freshman year, and despite showing flashes of what he could be, it showed. He didn't live up to his potential his first year at Kansas, which is a big reason why he ultimately decided to come back. His draft stock wasn't near what he thought it should be. So he came back and had to take more of an approach to learn the game from the lead guard spot versus just taking advantage of his quickness and shot making like he did in high school. And to his credit, he did make strides processing the game in smarter ways and choosing his spots better. Even though some of the percentages wouldn't say so, by the eye test and from what you hear, he was more efficient as a floor general and decision maker last year. I certainly didn't see him run into defenses nearly as many times as during his freshman year, which was a welcome sight to see. The problem here is with the jump shot. It all comes back to his ability to score from the outside. He regressed from three in his sophomore year, and I'm not sold that he'll be able to adjust to, to even get back to a near league average clip um, his first year in the league. And what he doesn't have to make up for um, that lack of a jumper is elite court vision. He improved playmaking out of pick and roll sets from year one to year two, but if he doesn't have the jump shot threat coming off those screens, not the elite passing ability um, to chop up NBA defenses, at some point he could revert back to trying to do too much around the basket if he can't get himself open looks or floaters. Now, I had similar concerns about Trey Young coming out of college, and while they're two different players with different upsides, Trey's quickness actually helped him get to spots on the floor to take advantage of his floater, which drew a different type of attention from defenses and let him have better vision to make passes out to the corners to rack up assists in that fashion. If Dotson gets a consistent floater game with his quickness, then it changes things in terms of the eval, and he looks more like the late first grade some people are touting him as. He's still young and can develop, and from what I've seen, he's a good kid in the locker room who wants to keep getting better. So he's an interesting draft choice. I have him as a second-round grade, but there is enough upside there for him to hit over my projection and earn a spot in the league similar to a lot of the other uh, first-round point guards I gave spot starter grades to.
Moving on, Sam Merrill out of Utah State is an interesting name to bring up here. Normally, I wouldn't be as confident that he gets drafted as much as I am, despite the unusual amount of buzz that his name has gotten from draft aficionados of late. But this is, alas, an unusual draft, and more developed prospects will find their way into getting picked if, if they can stroke it from the outside. And that's one thing he's proven he can do in a variety of ways. Unlike someone like Alexander, who I talked about, um, did his best work from three offset shots where he has time to gather and go up, Merrill was run off screens in motion a ton. Um, in college and had to perfect getting the ball off quick and in a hurry. He'd excelled in those shot situations in college in large part because he had to. 6'5 guard, not a ton to his game from an athletic standpoint, but yet he always found ways to get open with the right screen set, and he's craftier with the ball in his hands than someone might originally give him credit for. He really reminds me of a guard version of what Doug McDermott was for Creighton without the post-up game. He's a perimeter-oriented version of that kind of score that even though he wasn't the most athletic guy on the floor, he always found ways to get the ball in his hands and do something with it. Now, McDermott hasn't had the same level of success doing as much off the dribble as he did in college in the NBA, but he had his size to his advantage to at least give him some kind of edge when the game became more physical, not to mention being taller than a lot of other wings um, who were closing out to contest his catch-and-shoot looks. Um, he definitely had that to his advantage as well. Merrill doesn't have those same luxuries. So even though I've seen him hit some tough shots in college off the bounce, even pulling up in the mid-range, I'm having a harder time seeing him convert on those opportunities over NBA caliber defenders. I ultimately think someone's going to buy into what they saw on film and take him, given the fact that he's a good kid, passes um, the off-the-court test, and certainly competes when he's on the court. He's made it this far, and again, he can knock down threes. In his senior year, he hit on 41% on seven attempts from three per game. That's no aberration. And he's always converted on free throws when he's gotten the foul calls. He's smart with the ball in his hands. Uh, with the ball in his hands, he really doesn't make mistakes or cause turnovers, and he can shoot. That, to, that, that seems to me like someone who will get drafted in this class despite physical limitations and a more capped upside um, to, to my eye test. So here I'll go over some, some of those other Duke guys back-to-back. Um, -back. We'll knock them out, starting with Vernon Carey, then transitioning to the less heralded coming out of high school of the two in Cassius Stanley. So starting with Carey, uh, he was one of the top high school recruits, period. It was easy to see how he would translate to the college game, being a physical presence who could ideally dominate down low without having to put in the same effort level as you might in the pros. 6'10", 270 pounds, sure sounds like that type of center who should have put up numbers in the ACC given his skill set, and to a degree he did. He, he pretty much averaged 18 and 9, shooting 58% from the field and even um, can threes at a 38% clip. Those are impressive stats for any player at that level, but when you watch the film and take a look at the type of player he wants to be, he becomes a lot less appealing. Put simply, he fashions himself as a featured option who ideally wants to step out and knock down jumpers while grabbing the easy defensive boards and essentially calling it a day. Don't believe me? Go back and look at the tape. Sure, there are examples where he used the size to his advantage on the offensive glass or ran the court for a deuce, but that's not the Vernon Carey Jr. on the majority of possessions. He doesn't choose his spots well enough when settling for jumpers, and I don't buy him shooting that high of a percentage in the NBA given his sub-70% stroke from the free throw line. Combine those worries with the fact that he's a limited passer at best, and he's not a defensive presence other than purely making a play because of how big he is. He compares strongly to someone like Jalil Okafor. 
And I'd personally rather have Okafor because at a bare minimum, he offers reliable offense in the post working out um, with touch and footwork that Kerry just doesn't have. And by the way, we've seen how the Okafor experiment has turned out in the league. He absolutely has people in his corner, and there are scouts that have Kerry as a first-round pick. I definitely think he gets drafted. I just personally have other players and even other bigs that I'd rather take a swing on than Kerry. I talked in the last pod about someone like Xavier Tillman, who may not be as purely talented as Kerry. I primarily see him as an enforcer big in the league, but even he showed flashes of operating in a two-man game with a point guard off short rolls. Uh, between him and Cassius Winston, I don't see someone like Kerry excelling at, at something like that, even something as simple as that in the NBA. As a stretch big, there are just more appealing options with better upside or fit in today's game. So pivoting away from Kerry, finishing out the Dukies, we have Stanley as mentioned. 6'6 wing, who I actually thought was uh, Duke's most consistent player through the course of the season in terms of effort um, and potential upside. Stanley is a wing who just goes out and does whatever he possibly can to affect winning. You don't have to ask him to put in extra effort, dive after a loose ball, or run out in transition. He does all those things to the best of his ability. And for a guy his age, I like seeing players who aren't afraid to do the dirty work at a young age. It's why I appreciate guys like Tillman, or even higher up on my board, someone like Tyrese Maxey. As an evaluator, I respect guys who come in and do their jobs, no questions asked. Now, where the case for Stanley falls short um, is effort. Uh, and effort is his bankable skill that, that, that he brings to the league. His jumper is far from polished, despite shooting the equivalent of league average from deep in his lone year in college. He's not creative with the ball in his hands, more of a straight line drive cutter or garbage bucket getter. And I'm not sold that the IQ is completely there in terms of his understanding of the game. I think everything he got in college was from just trying harder in moments than other players did in some situations. And while that's to be commended and praised, that to me is in real upside. He's incredibly young. He can bounce out of the gym and maybe one of the maybe one of, if not the most vertical wing we have in this class. And with the right coaching, he could become a real defensive force on the wing with time and experience. But right now, I don't see enough of a case to give him a first-round grade, given there really isn't one true basketball skill that I could point to and say, yep, that's how he's going to earn minutes to develop at the next level. I'm giving him a shot, and I, I think a team will too, given the positives that I outlined. His jumper's not broken. He's willing to work off the ball and get open to score. He competes on defense. Those are positives that can lead to getting drafted, given his physical tools. But I feel he's a reach in the first right now, and I hope he proves me wrong because at the beginning of the year, I loved him as a prospect, and I'm still rooting for him as a longtime believer in Coach K and the Duke program as a whole. I'll move into Elijah Hughes here, another wing, um, next, and then save one of the more intriguing prospects in this crop for last. Hughes transferred to Syracuse from East Carolina and played two seasons for the Orange, where he became the team's go-to offensive threat after the departure of Tyus Battle. Measuring between 6'5 and 6'6, Hughes is a prime example of a pure bucket getter. His shot selection and style aren't always preferred methods of offense, especially when evaluating for the next level, but he put the team on his back in enough situations to stand out as someone who, like it or not, can create his own look against the defense and hit some tough shots, essentially from all three levels on the court. Is he efficient from all three levels? I don't trust his three-point stroke on enough volume. I think, like Battle, he's a much better mid-range operator and at some point um, in an NBA career could be the focal point 
or one of the focal points of a second unit and bring a different ISO type dimension to a bench offense. I just personally don't think he's an efficient enough option to be a starter, nor have I seen the shot making to be um, that superb to where I can point and say, forget the numbers. He's going to be able to create this look and that look at the next level, no problem, and convert on the same shots. Now, I've been wrong with that kind of a statement in the past, but he isn't winning me over on the defensive uh, end either. Guys coming from that Syracuse zone haven't exactly turned out to be the best defenders in man schemes, and I think Hughes will likely end up being another example. I don't see him moving well enough laterally to contain matchups on the wing at the next level, but then again, you could tell there were possessions on D where he had to save some of his energy for the other end because he was at times Hughes' only option to score when some of those other guys went cold. So maybe his effort level on defense changes, especially when he he may have to fight for a roster spot, let alone a rotation spot in the NBA. I don't hate Hughes. I just think we've seen this type of player before in the league, and generally it doesn't end well in terms of a lengthy career. He's proven enough in big games in the ACC and comes from a winning program with enough connections and pedigree to land him a draft spot, and I think he gets picked. How long he sticks in the league, if at all, that's a different story. So last but not least for today is Nate Hinton out of Houston. No, I'm not just a fan of his because he has the same first name as me, but consider me a huge fan of what he brings to the table. Remember when I said I like prospects who I can expect to come in and do their jobs? Hinton was one of the hardest workers in college basketball last year and flew so far under the radar, I really didn't take as much notice as I should have. But if you put on Houston tape, listen to Hinton when he's gotten to speak, um, or even listen to Coach Kelvin Sampson talk about him in general, you begin to see why there's going to be an NBA team that wants him on a roster. He only stands at 6'5", and while you can't call that small for a guard, he plays and especially rebounds like he's 6'9 or taller. I truly compare his rebounding prowess at his size to that of Russell Westbrook. Even though Westbrook is in a class of his own at times athletically, he also puts himself in position to take advantage of those physical gifts to rebound the ball on both ends through sheer willpower. Hinton, while not as gifted of an athlete as Westbrook, plays with the same mindset, and he has a nose for the ball that is unmatched. He consistently puts himself in the right position to sky up for boards on either end and make the most out of possessions. I've seen enough highlights of him starting out in the far corner and grabbing a rebound he had no business of being in the vicinity of. I mean, how many times are you going to box someone out who's not close to getting the right angle for a rebound? Hinton uses that uh, type of thinking to his advantage and takes off for a spot in the action the moment the ball leaves someone's fingertips. It's truly remarkable to watch and gives him a real bankable skill that can earn him minutes on the floor. His infectious energy is something that can be injected into games with a substitution. And while he's not some crazy high-level scoring threat or master defensive ace, he outworks almost everyone else on the floor and at least has enough size and athletic ability to leave an imprint on the game, even if it's just grabbing some timely boards, making a play and getting everyone around him believing or continuing to believe that they can win. Now, I don't want to undersell Hinton either because I think his IQ level making plays for others and doing the little things is underrated as well. He'll find someone in a cut on offense and hit them with a pass you weren't expecting. He'll do what he needs to off the ball to get open for an easy bucket. On defense, he's smart enough to know when to step in and take a charge or see where the ball is going to play a passing lane. Hinton always looks like he's thinking the game in a way you wouldn't expect from someone who's listed as an energy first kind of player. When you combine that type of motor with what I believe to be an underrated IQ, that's an NBA talent. If he's given the chance to win a rotation spot, I think he has everything in his bag to earn it. 
further development of his jump shot is the one thing that he can continue to work on to cement his draft stock or even land him a two-way contract should he go undrafted for whatever reason. But, I mean, come on. How many younger players have to still work on their jump shot as well, right? That That's something that you can always get better at the repetition. That's something you can always improve at no matter what stage of your career you're in. Um, but I think he gets picked, and I'm rooting for the kid because I've thoroughly enjoyed going back and watching the tape on him. So that about wraps up this week's show. Um, I want to thank all of you out there who have subscribed on your favorite podcast platform, be it Apple, be it Spotify, um, those who have subscribed on YouTube. You guys are the best. Any support I've gotten on social media, um, talking to any of you personally has been much appreciated. I'm so excited that we have the draft coming up in a few weeks. Um, for, for those who will be looking for something to take part in on draft night, trust me, there will be details, um, over the next few weeks regarding what we're going to be doing on Twitch for a, a draft live stream special. Kevin and I will be on Twitch, um, similar to how we were on, on lottery night, uh, going over the picks as they happen, kind of having some commentary back and forth. And then naturally, um, the day after the draft or, or a few days after the draft, We'll look to do a full reaction pod with a special guest, so definitely stay tuned for that. Um, next week, I'm probably going to be doing another solo pod to, to wrap up who I have as second-round grades, uh, rounding out my top 60. So that will all be in podcast form. I'll try and get big boards up both on social media, on Twitter, as well as um, do some things on Facebook as well. I know I haven't been as active on, on the Facebook page of late, but I've been so active on Twitter. So thank you so much for anyone who's followed the account there. Um, and then the week after that, I'm looking to do a full first round mock draft podcast with a special guest that I have lined up, kind of giving um, his reactions to pick by pick as I make them. I want to make picks from a GM perspective and what I would do with that pick if I was running the team. I'm not going to project trades. We're just going to go through and do a straight 30 pick projection um, and, and kind of have some commentary there. And, and hopefully it'll be a great precursor to what's going to happen on draft night. So I'm excited for everything that's coming up. And then once the draft's over, we move into the next season. College basketball is right around the corner. And trust me when I say there are big plans coming um, for, for things that we're going to be doing through the season, be it through Twitch streaming, be it through hopefully we'll have the website up by the start of the college season, um, giving some daily reports, some daily commentary. Trust me, Draft Deeper is by nowhere near done growing. Uh, we, we have a lot planned, so stay tuned. Thank you, everyone, again, for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. <laughs>